Chapter 33 of The Emancipation of South America by Bartolomé Mitre. Translated by William Pilling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Piotr Natter. Boyaca, Colombia, Carabobo. 1819-1822. In order to join Santander in Casanare, Bolivar had to cross an immense plain, covered at this season with water, and had to swim seven deep rivers, taking his war material with him. Then lay before him the most difficult part of his enterprise, the passage of the snow-covered cordillera in the depth of winter. All this he accomplished. He joined Santander at the foot of the Andes, at the sources of the river Casanare, on the 11th of June, 1819. His army now comprised four battalions of infantry, one of which, the Albion, was composed entirely of English, two squadrons of lancers, and one of carabiners, with a regiment called the Guides of Apure, part of which was English also. Two thousand five hundred men, well armed but nearly naked. Santander led the van with the Casanare division and entered the mountain defiles by a road which leads to the centre of the province of Tunja. This point was held by Colonel Barreiro with 2,000 infantry and 400 horse, with advanced posts on the Cordillera. A reserve of 1,000 men was stationed at Bogotá, at Cartagena, and in the valley of Cauca. A reserve of 1,000 men was stationed at Bogotá. At Cartagena and in the valley of Cauca were other detachments, and there was still another royalist army at Quito. Bolivar, who had fewer men, trusted much to the effect of surprise, and counted upon the support of the inhabitants. As the invading army left the plains for the mountains, the scene changed. The snowy peaks of the eastern range of the Cordillera appeared in the distance, while instead of the peaceful lake through which they had waded, they were met by great masses of water tumbling from the heights. The roads ran along the edges of precipices and were bordered by gigantic trees, upon whose tops rested the clouds, which dissolved themselves in incessant rain. After four days' march, the horses were foundered. An entire squadron of llaneros deserted on finding themselves on foot. The torrents were crossed on narrow trembling bridges, formed of trunks of trees, or by means of the aerial taravitas. Where they were fordable, the current was so strong that the infantry had to pass two by two, with their arms thrown round each other's shoulders, and woe to him who lost his footing, he lost his life too. Bolivar frequently passed and repassed these torrents on horseback, carrying behind him the sick and weakly, or the women who accompanied his men. The temperature was moist and warm. Life was supportable by the aid of a little firewood, but as they ascended the mountain the scene changed again. Immense rocks piled one upon another, and hills of snow bounded the view on every side. Below lay the clouds, veiling the depths of the abyss. An ice-cold wind cut through the stoutest clothing. At these heights no other noise is heard than that of the roaring torrents left behind, and the scream of the condor circling round the snowy peaks above. Vegetation disappears, only lichens are to be seen clinging to the rocks, and a tall plant bearing plumes instead of leaves, and crowned with yellow flowers, like to a funeral torch. To make the scene more dreary yet, the path was marked out by crosses erected in memory of travellers who had perished by the way. On entering this glacial region, the provisions gave out, the cattle they had brought with them as their chief resource could go no further, 
They reached the summit by the Paya Pass, where a battalion could hold an entire army in check. It was held by an outpost of 300 men, who were dislodged by the vanguard under Santander without much difficulty. Now the men began to murmur, and Bolívar called a council of war, to which he showed that still greater difficulties yet lay before them, and asked if they would persevere or not. All were of the opinion that they should go on, a decision which infused fresh spirit into the weary troops. In this passage more than a hundred men died of cold, fifty of whom were English, no horse had survived. It was necessary to leave the spare arms, and even some of those that were carried by the soldiers. It was a mere skeleton of an army which reached the beautiful valley of Sagamoso, in the heart of the province of Tunja, on the 6th of July, 1819. From this point Bolívar sent back assistance to the stragglers left behind, collected horses, detached parties to scour the country around, and communicated with some few guerillas who still roamed around. The enemy, knowing nothing of his numbers, took up strong positions and remained on the defensive. But Bolívar could not remain long inactive. Barreiro occupied a position which commanded the main road to Bogotá. It was necessary to attack him before he could receive reinforcements from that city or from Morillo. No sooner had he his army once more in hand than by a skilful flank movement Bolívar established himself on Barreiro's rear, in a country abounding in resources. The royalists were forced to evacuate their entrenchments, and a hard-fought but indecisive action took place in the swamps of Vargas on the 25th of July, after which Bolívar recrossed the Sagamoso River and forced Barreiro to again change his position. Then, deceiving him by a retreat in the daytime, he rapidly countermarched by night, and on the 5th of August captured the city of Tunja where he found good store of arms and war material, and placed himself between Barreiro's force and the army of Bogotá. Barreiro, finding his communications cut, marched resolutely on the capital, but it was too late. Bolívar had command of all the roads, and seeing that the royalists were advancing by the shortest route, which crossed the small river Boyacá by a bridge, he posted his army on the right bank and waited for them. The battle on the 7th of August commenced upon the bridge itself, where the Spanish skirmishers were driven back. Barreiro then formed his infantry in columns, with cavalry on the flanks, throwing out a battalion of light infantry on the right, whose fire might enfilade the attacking column of the Patriots. The Patriot center and right wing drove in an advanced party of Royalist infantry, and crossing a shallow stream threw themselves upon the left flank of the Royalist army, while the left wing and the cavalry attacked in front. The Royalist cavalry fled, the infantry retreated to a fresh position, but on a second attack threw down their arms. The vanguard, under Santander, accounted for all who were not with the main body. The victory was complete. Anzuategui, who led the infantry of the right and centre, and Rondon, who led the final charge of the Llanero horse, were the heroes of the day. The English auxiliaries were seen for the first time under fire, and showed that British solidity for which they were always famous. The trophies of the victory were 1,600 prisoners, including Barreiro himself, and 37 officers, 100 killed, and all the artillery and small arms. 
Boyacá is, after Maipó, the great battle of South America. It gave the preponderance to the patriot arms in the north of the continent, as Maipó had done in the south. It gave New Granada to the patriots, and isolated Morillo in Venezuela. Bogotá was panic-stricken. Samano fled with two hundred men to Cartagena, abandoning the archives and nearly a million dollars in the treasury. The rest of the garrison retreated under Colonel Calzada to the north. Bolivar, with a small escort, entered the capital in triumph on the 10th of August, amid the shouts and blessing of the populace. This victory was not stained with blood. Bolivar was no longer the man of 1813 and 1814. He shot one only of the prisoners he took, the man who had headed the mutiny at Puerto Cabello in 1812. By incessant activity, he soon became master of the whole country, which responded with enthusiasm to his call. He raised new battalions and organized a fresh army to make head against Morillo. Where Bolivar triumphed, there could be no lack of honors. Washington and San Martin avoided ostentatious demonstrations of gratitude, but Bolivar delighted in them. The municipality of Bogota gave him a cross of honor, a triumphal entry, and a crown of laurel. A picture of liberty supported by Bolivar was set up in the council chamber, and it was decreed that the anniversary of the great battle should be celebrated forever. The crown of laurel sat well upon his head. Upon that of Washington it would have been a caricature. But great as was Bolivar's vanity, there was room also in his head for great ideas. Making use of the ample powers conferred upon him by the Congress of Venezuela, he founded the Republic of Colombia, which was the dream of his life, and named Santander vice-president of New Granada. During a temporary absence of Bolivar, Santander shot the thirty-eight royalist officers who were taken prisoners at Boyacá, with Barreiro at their head, and finished off the hecatomb with a countryman who had protested against it on seeing the blood-stained benches. Santander justified his cruelty by saying that it was done in retaliation of similar barbarities committed by Barreiro, but some said it was done in revenge for the death of his mother, occasioned by the privations she had suffered while hiding herself from the persecutions of Samano. Bolivar returned to Angostura on the 11th of December, and found that affairs had greatly changed there during his absence. Thea had been deposed by a revolution, and Arismendi was now vice-president. Mariño was general-in-chief, and he himself was branded as a deserter for having undertaken the reconquest of New Granada without authority from Congress. The news of Boyacá had fallen as a thunderbolt among the disaffected, and his return quelled them utterly. He acted with great magnanimity, pardoned everything, resumed his authority, and announced to Congress the union of Venezuela and New Granada, calling upon it to give legal consistency to an accomplished fact. Congress, enlarged by the addition of five New Granadian deputies from the province of Casanare, decreed the establishment of the Republic of Colombia in three great departments, Venezuela, Quito, and Cundinamarca, each ruled by a vice-president. A new city, which should be called Bolivar, was to be the capital. The tricolored flag, raised by Miranda in 1806, was to be the flag of the new nation. A constituent congress was convened to assemble at Cucuta on the frontier of Venezuela. Bolivar was named provisional president of Colombia, Santander vice-president of Cundinamarca, and Rocio vice-president of Venezuela. The day of the installation of the Republic was fixed for the 25th of December. 
This great political business being settled, war again called for the attention of the Liberator. The Spanish armies in the north and west of Venezuela, and in Quito and Cartagena, amounted altogether to nearly 20,000 men, and reinforcements were expected from Spain. The new republic was still beset by dangers, while the strength of the country was well nigh exhausted. Urdaneta and Montilla had been unfortunate in their expedition. Urdaneta captured Barcelona on the 17th of July, but being there attacked by very superior forces, was compelled to re-embark his men and retire to Paria, where with some reinforcements he made an attack on Cumaná on the 5th of August, but was beaten off and withdrew to Maturin with a greatly diminished force. MacGregor took Portobello on the 10th of April, but was soon after driven out again with heavy loss. On the 5th of October he took Rio Acha, but the conduct of his troops was so bad that the citizens rose in arms against them and forced him to re-embark. Happily at this time the first division of the Irish Legion, 1,200 strong, reached the island of Margarita. Bolivar placed them under the command of Montilla, with orders to threaten Cartagena, and cooperate with the army of New Granada on the lower Magdalena, while the army of the Apure advanced from the plains of Caracas upon the capital. Paez had invaded Barinas with cavalry, but was soon forced to retire, after which Diaz captured ten armed flecheras on the Apure river, and on the 30th of September the patriots retook San Fernando, which gave them complete command of the Orinoco. Morillo, thunderstruck by the invasion of New Granada, remained inactive at Calabozo, and simply detached La Torre with 1,000 men to the valley of Cucuta, whence he was driven back by the division under Sublet, which crossed the hills against him from Pamplona. Sublet then joined Paez on the plains in his advance upon Caracas. Bolivar reinforced them with two battalions of infantry, one of which was English, and sent a strong column of Venezuelan troops under Colonel Valtez to the south of New Granada in order to act against Quito. Morillo, uncertain what to do, confined his attention to securing his base of operations in the western provinces of Venezuela. Happily for America, and for Spain also, the reinforcements expected from Europe never arrived. They could but have prolonged the struggle. The revolution of 1820 prevented them from leaving the mother country. The new policy of Spain was felt as much in the north as in the south of the continent. At the same time that San Martin broke up the armistice of Miraflores, Bolivar signed one with Morillo at Trujillo. When negotiations for peace recommenced at Punchauca, hostilities were renewed in Venezuela. The armistice signed by Bolivar and Morillo on the 25th of November, 1820, was of great service to the patriots, giving them much-needed breathing time, in which the country recovered somewhat from the exhaustion produced by the long continuance of the struggle, and the institutions of the new republic became to some degree consolidated. Now that the establishment of constitutional government in Spain gave hope of a possible reconciliation, commissioners were sent to the mother country to treat for peace, and Morillo, despairing of ultimate success, resigned his command and returned to Europe, leaving La Torre as general-in-chief of the royalist armies. The armistice was badly observed by both parties, more especially so by the patriots, while it was still in force and while the commissioners from colombia were at madrid on the twenty eighth of january eighteen twenty one the province of maracaibo declared itself independent and made overtures for a union with the republic of colombia 
La Torre declared that he should look upon the occupation of this province by the Patriots as an act of hostility. Bolívar acknowledged that such would be the case, but stated that the revolution itself was an accomplished fact, and as such he had a right to support it. The armistice was accordingly declared to be at an end on the 28th of April, 1821. During this interval of repose the Patriot armies had been considerably strengthened. While the armistice still lasted, Montilla had taken Rio Acha and Santa Marta, and was now besieging Cartagena with 3,000 men. Bolívar had 5,000 men at Barinas, and Paez was in his rear with 4,000 more. Bermudez, with 2,000 men, threatened Caracas from the east. The army of New Granada held the valley of the Magdalena. La Torre had 9,000 men, besides the garrisons of the towns on the coast, but his communications were interrupted by the revolution in Maracaibo. Bermudez, after retaking Caracas and meeting with varied fortune in desultory skirmishes, was compelled to retire, but his cooperations were of great effect in occupying the attention of a considerable portion of the royalist army. Bolivar established his headquarters at San Carlos, where he was joined by Urdaneta's division and part of the cavalry of the Army of the Apure, and then marched with 6,000 men in search of the enemy. La Torre had 5,000 men under his immediate orders, including a strong body of cavalry commanded by Morales, but uncertain of Bolivar's intentions, he detached two battalions of infantry and one squadron of cavalry to reinforce a royalist division which was stationed at Barquisimiento, thus materially weakening his force on the eve of a decisive action. The rest of his army he drew up on the wide plain of Carabobo, at the foot of the passes leading through the Cordillera. Bolivar, after surprising the principal pass on the 23rd of June, occupied the heights looking down upon the plains. He could only descend at the risk of having his troops cut up in detail before they could deploy on open ground. As Bolivar hesitated, a guide told him of another road which would lead him to the flank of the enemy. The next morning he detached Paez with 1,500 horse, the Apure battalion, and the British legion to attack the right flank of the royalists, while he, with the bulk of the army, remained on the heights, ready to descend by the main pass, when the coast was clear. The exit from the smaller pass was through a belt of woods and across a stream, commanded by a hillock, which was occupied by a detachment of royalists. The Apure battalion was in front, led by Paez in person, La Torre, with three battalions, and under cover of a heavy fire of artillery, attacked this battalion as it left the pass and threw it into disorder, but the British Legion, led by Colonel Ferrier, came quickly to its assistance, deployed in line, and with the front rank kneeling, poured in so heavy a fire that the advance of the Royalists was checked. The Apure rallied, and the cavalry charged on the right flank. Ferrier, having burned all his cartridges, led on his men with the bayonet and drove the enemy before him, while the Llanero horse rode them down and their ranks were disordered by the flights of their own cavalry. One battalion stubbornly kept its formation and repulsed every charge made upon it during a retreat of twenty miles, until it rejoined the rest of the routed army which took refuge in Puerto Cabello. Note. The following account of the Battle of Carabobo was written by an officer of the British Legion and was published in All Year Round. Quote, 
We halted at dusk on the 23rd at the foot of the ridge. The rain fell in torrents all night, and reminded us of the night before Waterloo. Next morning the sky was cloudless when we stood to arms, and presently Bolivar sent us the order to advance. We were moving to get round the enemy's right flank, where his guns and infantry were partly hidden by trees and broken ground. Bolivar, after reconnoitering, ordered us to attack by a deep ravine between the Spanish infantry and artillery. The enemy's guns opened fire, and our men began to fall. Meantime, the Bravos de Apure had advanced within pistol-shot of the Spaniards, and received such a murderous volley from three thousand muskets that they broke and fled back in disorder upon us. It was a critical moment, but we managed to keep our ground till the fugitives had got round our ranks back into the ravine, and then our grenadier company, gallantly led by Captain Minchin, formed up and poured in their fire upon the Spaniards, who were only a few paces from them. Checked by this volley, the enemy fell back a little, while our men, pressing eagerly on, formed and delivered their fire, company after company. Receding before our fire and the long line of British bayonets, the Spaniards fell back to the position from which they had rushed in pursuit of the Apure Bravos. But from thence they kept up a tremendous fire upon us, which we returned as rapidly as we could. As they outnumbered us in the ratio of four to one, and were strongly posted and supported by guns, we waited for reinforcements before storming their position. Not a man, however, came to help us, and after an hour passed in this manner, our ammunition failed. It then really seemed to be all over with us. We tried as best as we could to make signals of our distress. The men kept springing their ramrods, and Colonel Thomas Ferrier, our commanding officer, apprised General Paez of our situation and called on him to get up a supply of cartridges. It came at last, but by this time many of our officers and men had fallen, and among them Colonel Ferrier. You may imagine we were not long in breaking open the ammunition boxes. The men numbered off anew, and after delivering a couple of volleys we prepared to charge. At this moment our cavalry, passing as before by our right flank, charged with General Paez at their head. They went on very gallantly, but soon came galloping back, and passed again to our rear without having done any execution on the enemy, while they had themselves suffered considerably. Why Bolivar at this time, and indeed during the period since our first advance, sent us no support, I have never been able to guess. Whatever the motive, it is certain that the second and third divisions of the army quietly looked on while we were being slaughtered, and made no attempt to help us the curses of our men were loud and deep but seeing that they must not expect any help they made up their minds to carry the enemy's position or perish out of nine hundred men we had not above six hundred left captain scott who succeeded colonel ferrier had fallen and had bequeathed the command to captain minchin and the colors of the regiment had seven times changed hands and had been literally cut to ribbons and died with the blood of the gallant fellows who carried them but in spite of all this the word was passed to charge with the bayonet and on we went keeping our line as steady as on a parade day and with a loud hurrah we were upon them 
I must do the Spaniards the justice to say that they met us gallantly, and the struggle was for a brief time fierce, and the event doubtful, but the bayonet in the hands of British soldiers, more especially such a forlorn hope as we were, is irresistible. The Spaniards, five to one as they were, began to give ground, and at last broke and fled. Then it was, and not till then, that two companies of the tiradores came up to our help and our cavalry hitherto of little use fiercely pursued the retreating enemy the remains of the corps passed before the liberator with trailed arms at double quick and received with a cheer but without halting his words salvadores de mi patria End quote. End of note. this battle the complement of that of Boyacá, which has been called the Colombian Waterloo, secured forever the independence of Venezuela and New Granada, as Maipo and the expedition to Peru had secured that of the South, the three battles combining to prepare the definitive triumph of the emancipation of South America. The Bolivar entered Caracas for the second time in triumph. No one could now deny him the glory of being the liberator of his country. His retention of the supreme power, both civil and military, was more than ever a necessity. This was exactly the moment he chose for another resignation, but there was a reason for it. The Constituent Congress was convened at Cucuta on the 6th of May. It was composed entirely of civilians, of whom the greater number were lawyers, and was radically republican, opposed both to the abuses of military rule and to the anti-democratic theories of the liberator. His resignation was thus at once a protest against accusations made against him and an indirect way of influencing public opinion. Congress took no notice of his resignation, but quietly debated and enacted the Constitution of Colombia. It decided that the President should hold office for four years and should not be eligible for re-election, that the General-in-Chief of the Army should, while on active service, have no political power which was equivalent to the abolition of the military dictatorship, and that the constitution should not be reformed for ten years. It only adopted the ideas of Bolivar in one respect, which was in the establishment of a centralized system of government. His plans of a live presidency and of an hereditary senate, as also the live senate decreed by the Congress of Angostura, were rejected. Bogotá was declared the capital of the republic. Bolivar, quote, as he feared, End quote, was named president, and Santander vice-president. Bolivar repeated his resignation, but added that he would yield if Congress persisted. Congress did persist, upon which he made an eloquent speech, in which he said, quote, A man such as I am is a dangerous citizen under a popular government. I wish to be a simple citizen in order to be free, and that all may be so likewise. End quote. The dictator of Colombia, reduced in theory to the position of a constitutional president, showed on this occasion, as on all others, that though ambitious he was not a despot, and had no wish to be. He swore the constitution and proclaimed it, and devoting himself to his military duties, left the administration in the hands of the vice-president, but on the ninth of October, 1821, he procured the passage of a law by Congress which gave him absolute power over the army and empowered him to organize, as he pleased, the provinces he might liberate until he saw fit to place them under the constitution of the Republic. On the first of October, 1821, Cartagena capitulated to Montilla after a siege of fourteen months. 
The provinces of Panama and Veraguas, situate on the Isthmus, immediately declared themselves independent, and announced their intention of joining the Republic of Colombia. On the 28th of November the fortresses of Chagres and Portobello fell into the hands of the Patriots. In Venezuela the Spaniards, with 5,000 men, now held only Cumaná and Puerto Cabello on the windward coast. In order to round off the territory of Colombia, it was now only necessary to subjugate Quito. Thither converged the victorious armies of Bolivar from the north and those of San Martín from the south. San Martín was already in possession of one half of Peru and had one foot on Guayaquil. On the 1st of August, 1822, Bolívar left Cúcuta for the south. Before going, he divided Venezuela into three military departments under Mariño, Paez and Bermúdez, placing them under the superior orders of Sublet. On the 16th of October, Cumaná surrendered to Bermúdez. Puerto Cabello was still held by a royalist garrison of 4,000 men under Morales, who at this time succeeded La Torre in command. Morales displayed such activity and energy as for a time changed the aspect of the war. With 12,000 men he went by sea to Maracaibo, took that city on the 7th of September, and on the 12th of November routed a division of 1,000 men under Montilla. Then he overran the province of Santa Marta, and on the 3rd of December occupied the province of Coro. But in January 1823 Santa Marta was retaken by Montilla, and Coro by Sublet. Colonel Padilla, with a patriot flotilla which had greatly aided in the capture of Cartagena, entered Lake Maracaibo under the fire of the forts, and on the 24th of July totally defeated the Spanish squadron which was there stationed. On the 3rd of August, Morales capitulated. Puerto Cabello was taken by assault by Paez on the 7th and 8th of October, 1823, and the war in this part of the continent was at an end. End of chapter 43